I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Iran inaugurated President Hassan Rouhani for a second term in office this past weekend. But with tensions once again on the rise, questions remain as to what path Iran will take going forward, and also what the future of the JCPOA, commonly referred to as the Iran nuclear deal, may be, and also what this actually means for the region. To hash through the latest on Iran, from internal politics to its current relationship with the United States and other regional powers, Stratfor senior global analyst Matthew Bay sits down with Middle East and North Africa analyst Emily Hawthorne in this edition of the Stratfor podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hello, my name is Matthew Bay, and I am a senior global analyst here at Stratfor. And joining me today is Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East analyst. And we're here to talk about um, this weekend's inauguration of President Hassan Rouhani in Iran. This is the second term for Rouhani going forward. And there, it's been in the news for a lot of reasons. The uh, Iran-U.S. relationship has come under increased scrutiny under President Trump's term. So, Emily, what have we seen happening at the high level between the U.S. and Iran over the last six or seven months? So once we had... Uh, the election of President Donald Trump back in November of last year, we sort of immediately saw um, a few things happen in the Middle East. One was a sense among some of the larger Sunni states, including Saudi Arabia, that the new administration in Washington would fully back them in trying to contain a lot of Iranian activity in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this does match really well with some of the priorities in the administration. We can go into that a little bit more um, later. But we've seen a real priority in the Middle East to do two things. One, um, combat and contain and fight violent extremist organizations. And two, to contain Iranian activity in the Middle East. So that no surprise, has done some interesting things to the U.S.-Iran relationship and really added a lot of tension. And the JCPOA nuclear deal is just one part of that relationship between the United States and Iran. We have seen over the last six months in Iran um, a very important presidential election take place. Um, We just had the inauguration officially of Hassan Rouhani into that position. But in May, in the lead up to the election in Iran, it was very interesting because we did see some tone down of some of the typical acts that we would see from Iran versus the United States and versus United States allies like those Arab Gulf states. Um, So we we didn't see the same amount of ballistic missile launches or the same amount of Persian Gulf episodes of of interaction between U.S. ships and, and, and Iranian ships, for instance. But now, after Rouhani's election, we have seen um, an uptick in some of those of those events that have become a little bit par for the course between the United States and Iran. Right. And I think the most recent of those would have been, I guess, two weekends ago, actually. There was a, a couple of times, actually twice in a matter of a week, where the United States and the Iranian Navy ca- kind of scuffled up. They um, shot warning shots at each other in two different events. And even before that, I remember that we saw, uh, beginning in April, similar activity starting to happen between Iran and some of the other uh, GCC states. So it's not just the United States. And you kind of touched upon how the GCC states are actually trying to spin this to to their own advantage, in a sense, under President Trump. One of the things, though, that 
is really starting to really increase in fragility is the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Um, when President Trump was uh, running for uh, running for the U.S. presidency, he promised to rip it up, one of those many deals that he promised to rip up. Um, and we're actually seeing momentum, or at least an, an idea, that, that a growing momentum behind that, uh, at least increasing the possibility of that. April was the first time that the Trump administration had to recertify Iran's compliance with the nuclear deal. Um, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson did. Um, you have to do that every 90 days. And then that most recent, uh, the most recent recertification was last month. And that was very begrudgingly. Can we go right. into what was going on around that? Well, I think it might be helpful just to start. And there's so much rhetoric around this JCPOA nuclear deal. It, it might be good to just start with right. what does this deal govern and what does it not touch? Because, it, you know, there's been a lot of confusion over that. Mm-hmm. And we've seen new U.S. sanctions against some of Iran's activities, but nuclear activities were not included in that. Maybe you could go into some of the differences between what the GCPOA covers and what it doesn't. Right. So the JCPOA was designed essentially to freeze and reduce some of the capabilities that Iran has in its nuclear program. But what the Obama administration and the Europeans carefully constructed to do because of A, be, uh, because A, it would never have passed the Iranian political system. It didn't include or disclude other things was design a deal that did not touch its mil- uh, missile program. It did not touch its nest- terrorist activities. It did not touch its human rights violations. All of these things were kept separate from the nuclear deal. Well, um, and to Iran, some of those the, the activities that are viewed as, as terrorist activities by the GCC states or by uh, the United States, you know, to Iran, that's a normal expression of their their military capabilities ab- abroad or or their right. their support for proxy groups. So they're 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 not going to relinquish that. And easily. they also see, and well, going off to the point of what proxy groups are to to both countries, they can point to the United States sometimes and look at the groups that the United States is backing and saying, "Hey, look, they're doing similar activities as well." It's not it's not as it's there are many shades of gray in what you define to be proxy groups. Since the JCPOA only really touched Iran's nuclear weapons program and anything that could really be a, contributing to that's development. Whenever Iran does something that is pro-terrorism, I guess, from the United States perspective, or launching off a uh, missile test, those aren't going to be violated in JCPOA, but the United States still needs to sanction those activities. And Iran turns around and says, hey, you know what? You're violating the spirit of the nuclear deal. But since the nuclear deal is only touching actual physical things about the nuclear program— it's this really gray area where both sides have the rhetoric and they try to spin it domestically within their within the United States and with Iran. And that is a domestic thing or at least a domestic argument that they're trying to sell the current relationship or, or, or paint the other person in a different light. So now, both sides see the other side as culpable exactly. for really being the partner that is not abiding by the deal. Mm-hmm. And both really view the deal in different ways. And, you know, the United States, when it's writing – uh, when Congress has been writing these new sanctions, they're very careful to write them in a way that does not infringe on Iran's nuclear activity because technically Iran is in compliance. Exactly. And that's the interesting thing when you look at the United States. The United States, what we've promised to do um, in the deal is essentially not put back the secondary sanctions on energy companies that are European companies that are doing business with with Iran. That's the sanctions that, the, that really clamped down the Iranian economy, something that Rouhani had to dig dig the government out of the, uh, of the problem in the first place. Um, so yeah, you're right. Absolutely. When we the new sanctions are not touching those things, they're only touching other issues like sanctioning companies that were supporting the missile program um, and things like that. Or uh, companies related to the uh, Revolutionary Guards. Right. The major component of Iran's military. Right. And but what the Trump administration is doing is looking at a much broader picture. Instead of just defining 
um, the relationship with Iran just looking at the idea of its nuclear program. They're saying, okay, well, the fact that we have this JCPOA, that actually constrains our ability to use our biggest leverage against them, which are sanctions that are on its economy, which are now a violation of the JCPOA if we were to put them back onto place. So it is this question of looking at a much broader issue about how can we change the relationship with Iran, change Iran's behavior, and they see the JCPOA as potentially being something that basically ties their hands behind their back and allows them not to pressure Iran in the ways that they want to. Now, the review that we're seeing going forward, and there's obviously a huge divide in the White House uh, and then in the Trump administration about how what the answer is to this question. Is it actually worth it to, to reopen the nuclear issue with Iran to the point where we are willing to sacrifice the JCPOA, knowing that Iran might restart the nuclear program? Or is it actually better for us to pressure Iran and other alternatives. So you have, you know, one faction of the White House who's backing the idea of keeping the JCPOA. So um, Rex Tillerson is in that camp. Um, Secretary of Defense James Mattis is in that camp. Um, uh, McMaster is in this camp. All these other figures are in this camp. And then you have the other side of the, the more ideological um, anti-Iran hawkish uh, faction that is going to be led by figures like Steve Bannon, et cetera. So, so there is this divide going forward. And I think that's that, that, that debate isn't been settled yet. And that's what's no. made the JCPOA very much more fragile than it looked even two weeks ago or three weeks ago. The moment that it became very public that this JCPOA deal on the United States side was in a little bit more trouble than we thought was the moment when uh, the president had to submit his certification for Iran's compliance to Rex Tillerson to take to Congress. Mm -hmm. And that's due every three months based on the available information that the United States has now. And that's the same information that the the rest of the the P5 plus one that signed this deal have. Iran is in compliance. But what we've seen now is the White House is conducting an extra review. They've said that that review will likely be done before October, which is when the next three-month deadline is due. And this leaves us in a bit of a precarious place because it does seem like the United States is is looking, this current administration is looking for Iranian infractions. An excuse, basically, right? Yeah. and Well, that's the question, right? Are they looking for an excuse or are there legitimate infractions that they are are trying to look for? I mean, nobody, even when this deal was being painstakingly written, debated, no one said that this was the absolute perfect deal Mm -hmm. to contain Iranian nuclear activity. A lot of people at the time said this deal needs to be longer than 10 years. A lot of people said that it needs to have a wider umbrella for containing Iranian activity. There were a lot of legitimate criticisms against the deal. But it is interesting now, this administration versus the former administration is really taking out the magnifying glass and trying to find new ways that may have gone unnoticed. And in some sense, it it does make you wonder if it's an excuse to pin something Or it's also the question about looking for something that might be concerning that they don't know anything about and then going through the official JCPOA process of actually bringing up a complaint and then seeing if Iran complies with actually opening up military sites or other sites which they have not had to do thus far. And if Iran says no, that is actually a violation of the JCPOA. And then you can say, hey, look, they're hiding something. Um, There must be something there that gives us reason or cause to pull out the deal going forward. We'll get back to our conversation on Iran with Stratfor's Matthew Bay and Emily Hawthorne in just one moment. But if you're finding this discussion interesting, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com. Much of our broader analysis on Iran is collected under a special topic page focused on Iran's arc of influence. We'll include a link in the show notes. And if you're not already a Worldview member, 
Individual, team and enterprise subscriptions are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now let's get back to the second part of our conversation on Iran with Stratfor's Matthew Bay and Emily Hawthorne. The re-election of Rouhani, who is a, a moderate figure in, in, in Iran, is also going to be kind of interesting when you look at what we've seen across the, the Gulf um, countries in the last few weeks, particularly in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman, now the crown prince, who has a very anti-Iran um, position relative to his predecessor as crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Nayaf. So what do you think Saudi is looking at this now? They're obviously pushing in one direction. They have a really good relationship with the Trump administration. So what, do you, what are they thinking right now? Yeah, I think that the role of Saudi Arabia in terms of appealing to this U.S. administration um, has been really important leading up to this point. Um, I think there still is a, a sense of a harmonization of views between Riyadh and Washington that Iran is something that needs to be firmly contained. And like you said, this new crown prince, this young um, defense minister and crown prince, and really the first of the third generation of Saudi leaders he very strongly said in recent months that Iran is not something Saudi Arabia wants to negotiate with. It's, I believe it's, he said that he even wants to take it to the back, the fight to the backyard. <laughs> yeah, and this was very concerning because um, it's well known that Iran and Saudi Arabia are engaged in proxy warfare in a number of theaters um, throughout the Middle East. The, mo- the most obvious of them would 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 probably be Syria, um, but there are other places where they try and use soft power or actual. Uh, or, or prop up certain groups or ally with certain groups that really push against each other um, in places like Lebanon, um, in places like Yemen. Also in Iraq, we're seeing renewed Saudi Arabian interest. It's been very interesting over the last month to see a much more visible, strong Saudi Arabian interest in uh, developing relationships with Baghdad. And Iran has very strong relationships across the security and political sphere in Iraq. So when we look at Hassan Rouhani taking a second term. He is looking at a Saudi Arabia that under the leadership of this new crown prince is much more hawkish on Iran's activities, much more willing to harshly answer to anything that Iran does in the Middle East that Saudi Arabia views as counter to their wishes for the region and counter to their vision for the region. Um, I think it's really easy to overblow uh, the Shiite versus Sunni dynamic, uh, that that's part of it. But it, this is a competition between two geopolitical powers in the Middle East that are competing for political and economic dominance in the region. Iran is a larger country demographically. Um, they have a highly educated population. There's a lot of reasons also why Saudi Arabia has a lot in its favor and that it's strong. Um, it has an incredible amount of oil wealth, a higher GDP per capita. Um, but both it's also, and I think it's also important to, important to point out that because you mentioned that the Sunni Shiite divide is probably a little bit overblown. I mean, when we look at Iraq in particular, for example, um, a lot of the Shiite there are actually Arabs; they're not Pers- ethnic Persians. And um, obviously, the Sunnis on the Ar- Arabian Peninsula are ethnic Arabs. So there is a different kind of a, a, a relationship there that's not necessarily religious, but more ethnic based. So that they have been trying to take to their advantage. So there are multiple fault lines that you know layer this particular region that spanned ethnic, sectarian, and all kinds of different divisions, and Iran and Saudi Arabia are trying to exploit them. Now, let's kind of, you know, go back to to, to Iran. So you, Rouhani is facing this world. So is Iran. But we when we look at the Iranian presidency and how that fits into the Iranian political system, it's not a very strong 
office to have in terms of, you know, the supreme leader is the outsized. He is still the head honcho. Um, the defense establishment, the un- unelected institutions in Iran, they have a lot of the power, particularly when it comes to things like national security, regional policy. So what areas do you think, though, Rouhani, at least internally, um, is going to have the biggest impact in his second term, or at least things where he has more room to maneuver than he does necessarily on foreign policy issues? I think that it, it is a really important point that you bring up, that the position of the president in the very unique political system that Iran has, it, it is an inherently weak position. Um, but it is elected, and he was elected with a pretty strong mandate um, in this May election. And he, and he won over the, the guy that we all indications were that the Supreme Leader was backing 100% or at least 50%. <laughs> well, and uh, there were indications that, that yeah, his, his, his strongest opponent, Ibrahim Raisi, was supported more by the uh, more conservative establishment, the more hardline establishment. But Rouhani... During his first term, I I think it's important to look at what did he do right in terms of what he has the most power to do. And one of those things is the economy. President Rouhani, during his first term, was fixated on making sure that the JCPOA nuclear deal came into came to be signed and came into implementation. Um, That happened in 2015 after years of of painstaking negotiations. The JCPOA matters within Iran to normal Iranians, to people that voted for Rouhani in a large sense because of how it affects the economy and because of the way that it opens up, takes off some of the sanctions on Iran that limited oil activity. And that's Iran's main source of revenue. And also um, his economic policies were are fundamentally in a, just a different vein than his predecessor, uh, Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad, um, yeah. Yeah. So, for example, he was able to get down a lot of the inflation. I believe it's now under 10% for the first time in a very long time. I believe the 1990s even. Um, so he definitely has things that he can point to going forward. But um, one other thing that we have to think about, though, is – some of these unelected institutions like the the Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, they have a lot of political clout as well. They have things that they're trying to protect. And that's some of the things that we're going to be seeing, I think, moving forward in a second term is this big broader question about how he can continue to withstand some of the pressures coming from a relatively different group of actors within Iran. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they oppose the nuclear deal fundamentally. Um, the IRGC has its, its 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 giant economic interests, and yes, it took uh, took advantage of the sanctions under under uh, Rouhani's predecessor. But at the same time, um, it's kind of the saying, you know, if you raise all the water, all the boats go up. Um, the same thing's kind of true here in the case of the IRGC. A lot of their business interests, for example, they span, you know, ancillary services such as logistics, things like that, that could still get on board with just a more fully functioning economy. Right. And this is one of the main reasons why, regardless of this heightened tension between the United States and Iran, Iranian leaders across the spectrum, they want to keep that nuclear deal in place. And they don't want to be the ones to cause the deal to fall apart. And they don't plan on doing that uh, because as you said, the inflation has gone down in Iran over Rouhani's tenure. Um, and a large part of that, not a large part of it, but that did have something to do with the nuclear deal. The real GDP going up, that was in large part due to uh, the nuclear deal coming into place. One of the big problems for Rouhani remains unemployment. Um, and this is something that even if some of Rouhani's opponents are happy with the general economic progress, and if they still want that to keep happening in Rouhani's second term, they can still raise the pressure on him, sort of turn up the heat on him in terms of the things that he's not been able to do well. And one of those is is changing the unemployment picture within Iran. So that's one of his big challenges moving forward. And then getting back to your important point about 
these divides between Rouhani and, and, and members of the, the rest of the Iranian political establishment, which is very varied and diverse, and it's hard to put it into distinct parties like we would have in, in the United States. We are seeing in the second term a greater likelihood of Rouhani falling more in line with some of the more of the hardline policies. And that's been a really interesting dynamic that's just begun to happen. Right. Um, I believe we saw two weeks ago, I guess, um, or a week and a half ago, um, Rouhani sitting down with the IRGC leadership, or at least key commanders, and, and at least trying to mend fences to some degree. And if you think about it, with the new pressure from Saudi Arabia, from the United States, Rouhani and the IRGC, they need to pragmatically work together. They can't have the same kind of divisions that they had in the first term, at least especially during the negotiations, if they're going to manage this tension that they're this new kind of onslaught from the Trump administration and um, Mohammed bin Salman. So I think that is something that is kind of, you know, a pragmatic relationship that's going to evolve going forward. And and one of the interesting things, if you just look back at the history of, of Iran's presidents, they almost always get a second term. And in the second term, because they're institutionally the presidents are weak – they don't get a lot done. Mm-hmm. And, and and previous presidents have typically tried to go against the political establishment. It's never really worked out that way. Most of them have either after office have either been blacklisted, um, prevented from running for office in the future. But, um, and then some one of them was even basically had a, a media blackout. So so mm-hmm. so Rouhani, if he goes too far against those interests, he's going to have the same things that, that are happening to him. So he's actually taking a much more of a, of a pragmatic role, at least in the first few days. Obviously, it's a four-year term, so we'll, we'll see how that plays out going forward. But um, that's an interesting dynamic that I think is something to, um, to keep watching. Now, going back to the JCPOA, which is still, I think, the most important issue or for Iran. Um, it's obviously an important issue for the United States in terms of the way that they pressure Iran. Um, let's just think about how that could go from here. Because, I mean, there's a lot of different options. It's unclear whether or not the United States is going to actually... Um, pull out of the JCPOA. But if you just think about what happens, you know, if that were to happen, that means that the United States would at least potentially start to re-sanction investments into Iran by foreign companies, say European companies. And that gets to the fact that this JCPOA nuclear deal is not just a deal between the United States exactly. and Iran. Um, and I think that is something that is going to be an important dynamic. And we've seen Iran kind of already start to spin that to its advantage. Um, one of the people that was in attendance at the uh, at the uh, inauguration was the foreign uh, foreign policy commissioner for for the EU. Um, we've seen Iran build a lot of economic ties in, since the JCPOA was put into place. Um, we've had the total natural gas investment. We've seen a lot of the sales of, of Iranian oil go back to back to Europe. Um, so if the uh, Europeans are not on board, this is a very sticky issue that is a very much a challenge that the Trump administration is going to have to do if they actually want to to pull out of the deal because they're going to be essentially going against what their allies want. And this is something that the United States did do in the 1990s um, under President Clinton when they put these the sanctions regime into place, the, the big ones in 1996. At that, we, at that time, we did put secondary sanctions into force. Ironically, the first deal that was important that kind of came up in that context was another total deal with Iran in the same field that they went to now, which is kind of a funny and ironic thing. But the Europeans threatened to go to the WTO uh, and essentially block any kind of secondary sanctions. They they look at secondary sanctions on their own firms for doing business with Iran as you know an extraterritorial um, application of U.S. law that hits on a you know national sovereignty issues and concerns that that the Europeans certainly don't like. So and that's where we see a big difference between the former administration and the current administration in Washington. I mean, you even had former Secretary of State John Kerry going and and actually speaking with European allies uh, and and trying to reassure them that the United States was not going to mm-hmm. um, snap any sort of economic penalty on them for doing business with Iran. Um, and that's one of the main complaints coming from Iran right now is that they're not 
feeling that that good faith from the the United States side that they uh, will freely allow trade into Iran from the EU. And we're not talking about U.S. trade with Iran. We're talking about EU trade between many different EU countries and Iran. Um, And I think that that's a a huge point of tension and one of the reasons you've seen a really concerted effort on the EU side and the Iranian side to deepen some of those ties, because the deeper those ties are, the more complicated it is to, to undo them if the United States changes its mind on the JCPOA. So, um, Emily, thank you for uh, coming and joining me and having um, a conversation on this. So we've got a lot to think about. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the Iran-U.S. relationship. Um, the JCPOA is definitely becoming more more increasingly fragile. And here at Stratford, we will definitely be watching this very closely. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Matt. That's it for this episode of the Stratford podcast. But you can continue the conversation by diving into our geopolitical analysis on Iran and its arc of influence at Stratford Worldview. If you're not already a member and value unbiased research and analysis on global affairs, visit us at worldview.stratford.com slash subscribe to learn more about individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions. You can even contribute to the conversation by sharing your insights in the forums section on Stratford Worldview. There you can engage with other readers, as well as Stratfor analysts, editors, and contributors on the latest developments. And if you have a comment or an idea for a future episode on the podcast, email us at podcast at stratfor.com or give us a call on 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter, at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.